after a, a brief sojourn looking at how God supports us and sustains us even when life turns a little sour, that's what we did in the month of August. We are back now in September, and we will be probably until the beginning of the Christmas season, the end of November, uh, back in 1 Samuel. If you remember where we were in 1 Samuel, we finished up in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 8 is the people demand a king. They look at the nations around them. They say, we want to be like them. Will you give us a king like the other nations have? Now, the, the sad part here is Israel had a king. Their king was Yahweh. Their king was God. The nation of Israel was, in all intents and purposes, a true theocracy in which God was to rule and to reign. Now, God worked through his judges and through his prophets, but he was not working through a king. But in 1 Samuel 8, we saw the people come up and they say they want a king. They demand a king. There's this back and forth between the people and the prophet Samuel, prophet and judge Samuel, about bringing a king. And Samuel warns them what a king means, what a king will do. They say, no, we want a king anyway. And so now as we pick 1 Samuel back up, in chapters 9 and 10, and we actually are going to cover both chapters 9 and 10 today, but don't worry, I'm not reading all of it. But it's the story of, of Saul, this first king, being anointed as king and then being received by the people as king. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel, we're going to be in the first two verses of chapter 9, and then we're going to be in toward the end of chapter 10. So will you stand with me as you're willing and able and read along with me. There was a prominent man of Benjamin, meaning the tribe of Benjamin, named Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zorar, son of Becherath, son of Aphana, a son of a Benjamite. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. And then we turn over to chapter 10. It's probably a page over for you. Chapter 10, picking up in verse 20. Samuel had all the tribes of Israel come forward, and the tribe of Benjamin was selected. Then he had the tribe of Benjamin come forward by its clans, and the Matriite clan was selected. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was selected. But when they searched for him, they could not find him. They again inquired of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? The Lord replied, There he is, hidden among the supplies. They ran and got him from there. When he stood among the people, he stood a head taller than anyone else. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the one the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among the entire population. And the people shouted, Long live the king. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. 
Dear precious Heavenly God, as we come before you this morning, as we open your word, as we look at the story of Saul, God, I pray that you would open our minds and our ears and our hearts so that we would see the truth of your word, the message that you have for us today. God, my prayer this morning, as it is every day, is that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God, and our King. Amen. You be seated. This is in, these two chapters are an interesting story. It's an interesting way that the author of the book of Samuel has, has come about to tell us about the selection of Saul. And, and if you were to read the story about the selection and the anointing of Saul, and then were to jump over several chapters and read about the selection and the anointing of David, you would see that right here, as the author is telling the story about how Saul is anointed, he is already setting up a juxtaposition between Saul and David. These first two kings of Israel. Now, we're going we're gonna to go out on a limb, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess that most of you remember this, but in case you don't, I'm going to give you a little bit of a spoiler warning here. Saul does not work out as a king. Saul is not Israel's permanent king. If you've spent any time in church, you probably are aware of this. You, you probably know that, right, that, that when we get to Christmas, we talk about Jesus being of the line of, of Jesse and of David. Jesus is not of the line of Saul. We talk about the Davidic monarchy, the line of David, the, 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 the star, the six-pointed star that is used as a symbol of Jews around the world on the flag of the nation-state of modern Israel is not the star of Saul. It's the star of David. Saul, in case you don't know this, Saul does not work out as a king. Now, what the author of Samuel is, knows is he knows that his readers are going to know that already. And so when he tells the story about the selection of Saul, he's already constructing it, writing it, talking about it in such a way so that we can see the differences between Saul and David. See, what we see here is, is really, this is, is the telling of this story is beginning to tell us who Saul is. About a, about a month ago, in the first sermon in, this, in, the, in the Lemons series, we talked about this idea, right, of character. And we remembered that old axiom that I know my father gave me, and I'm sure your father or mother gave you, that character is what you do when nobody is looking. Character is who you really are, not the front you put on, not the performance you put on, not the mask you put on, but character is who you really are. And what we're seeing here 
this early is we're beginning to see who Saul really is. You know, it's interesting. Both here at the very beginning of chapter 9 and over in chapter 10 where we read, right, we read twice this comment that Saul stands a head taller than all of the other Israelites. Now, that might seem like a sort of weird little detail to put into it. But if you've ever read all the way through Scripture, you might have noticed that it is only the enemies of Israel upon whose height the writer ever comments. That was a very convoluted sentence. Let me try that again. The only time Scripture talks about how tall somebody is is when it's one of Israelites' enemies, with the exception of Saul. So even already right there, just by including that little detail, the author of Samuel is starting to put up big neon lights. Hey, pay attention. This guy ain't all that great. Not only is he remarked on as being taller than everyone, he also comes from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, if we had been reading through in chronological order, we would have recently read the end of the book of Judges. Now, we've talked about Judges before, right? And Judges is this thing where, where like it start, everything kind of starts out okay, and then it's just it's really the story of Israel's descent into madness, almost descent into depravity each story each incident in judges is is worse than the incident before it and where it ends is it ends basically with a with a a genocide carried out by the other tribes of israel against the benjamites and then because they're concerned that the tribe of benjamin is going to fall out it then goes into mass kidnapping and rape by Benjamin of other women from other tribes because they are afraid that the tribe of Benjamin is going to die out. So this is the tribe out of which Israel's first king comes. Now, I'm just going to remind us, right? This, we, we are not here, we, we are not that far removed chronologically from those events. I mean, we're talking only a lifetime or two. You know, what's interesting as we continue to read about Saul through here, as we read, you can read all of chapter 9 and chapter 10. Never once does the author ever comment on Saul's mind or character. The only conversation that we ever see about Saul is his physical characteristics. That he's a head taller than everybody else. And, and if we go back, we can, we can think about this, and we can, can think about what has Israel asked for. They've asked for a king, but what was their specific request? Remember? I know it's been about a month. Give us a king like everybody else has. Give us a king 
like everybody else has. I don't know how many of you have studied in depth any history prior to the democratic revolutions of the 18th century. But often how kings were chosen was who was the strongest, who was the best warrior. You know, we, we, we use this expression in the 20th and 21st century of warlord. Once upon a time, we just called them kings and dukes and jarls. You rose to leadership by being a mighty warrior, by being bigger, stronger, and badder than everybody else, by physical prowess. You didn't necessarily rise to become king because you were a, a man of good character or sound mind. Do any of you all ever, you may not, this is a very sort of niche thing, but has, has anybody ever encountered this, this really little comedy book that was written, I think, in the 60s or the 70s called 1066 and all that? It's a, it's a comic telling of British history. And one of the things that happens in there is they'll be talking about a king and they'll say, he was a very bad king. Or, and he was a very good king. But often what happens, right, was, was the kings were good or bad because of their character, because of their intellect, because of some of these other things. But that's not why they were kings. And it's certainly not why their forefathers were kings. Why did the Normans come to the throne of England? Because a French-speaking Viking warlord from the province of Normandy in France sails across the English Channel and defeats the English army. So for years, the king of England spoke not English, but French. There hasn't been an Englishman on the English throne since 1066. That's how kings are chosen. And so when they say we want a king like everybody else has, God says, okay, here you go. Now, before we get too judgmental on how ancient peoples pick their kings, I just want us to remind ourselves that it is a well-known fact of political science that if two individuals are running against each other for president, the one who is taller will win. That's just the reality. Almost always, whichever candidate is taller, whichever candidate looks better, whichever candidate, you've heard this before, right? looks presidential. Another great example of this, some of you may remember this, that in 1960 there were the first televised presidential debates between the current sitting vice president of the United States, a former senator from the state of California, Richard Milhouse Nixon, against the junior senator from the state of Massachusetts, a war hero by the name of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Anybody remember the story of that 
televised, first televised presidential debate. Kennedy's advisors told him, you're going to be on camera. Let's put some makeup on you so you'll look a little better. Nixon's people told him the same thing, and in typical Nixon fashion, he said, me? Put on makeup? No. Interestingly, studies have been, have been done. Those who saw the debate thought Kennedy won. Those who listened to the debate on the radio, remember the radio? Those who listened to the debate on the radio thought that Nixon won. So let's not get too judgmental over people picking their leaders because they look like leaders. But see, that's, that's what God has done here. You know, what's one of the expressions that we hear about David, that God says about David? God says that David is a man after his own heart. And so what God has done here is he has allowed the people, he has chosen a man not after his heart, but after the people's heart. Saul is not a man, not a king of God's own heart, but of the people's. You know, there are other similarities here between, uh, between these, these stories. There's this, there's this interesting interlude um, in the story about Saul uh, in which Saul is sent out to, to collect his father's donkeys. Now, it's interesting, right? Because the first time that we see Saul, he's out with donkeys. The first time we see David, where is he? He's out with the sheep. So in both cases, they're out with animals. In both cases, they're out with animals that can be a little stubborn, hard-headed, in need of corralling. Perhaps all benefits to leadership, right? If any of you have ever taught school, or been in charge of a, any number of people in a workplace or wherever else, people need corralling, don't they? People can, can lend themselves to entropy and disorder. You know, I like to joke, I don't believe in organized religion. I'm a Baptist. Sometimes leading a Baptist congregation is like herding cats. But, but we see this the first time we see Saul, he's out, he's out with these donkeys. Now, I don't know how much y'all know about donkeys. Has anyone ever gotten a chance to spend time with donkeys? A couple folks. A couple folks. It's interesting, you know, several years ago, my father-in-law decided that he, was, that he was getting to an age that he no longer wanted. He was a cyclist, and he no longer wanted to, 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 to be a cyclist because... He was, you know, he would if he'd fall, he'd have an accident, he'd be more likely to get hurt. It was hard on his body. So, so he did what any rational person would do. He sold his bicycle and bought a horse. Interestingly, since he's bought the horse, he's had more broken bones than he had on a bike. But we went out when we were up there uh, th this past week. We, we went to go see Dexter, the horse. And Dexter is boarded... Uh, with several other horses, and the, the lady who owns the barn has recently gotten two miniature donkeys. 
and they are as cute and terrifying as it sounds. And so I was out there, I, I, I was out actually with her husband, and we were all there, and, and uh, he, he brought me, I, I had gone to pet one of the donkeys, and I was under the power lines, and so I accidentally shocked, shocked her nose, and so I didn't think that she'd ever want to have anything to do with me. Well, we solved that problem with, with, with snacks. And so I had given them both a couple of little snack biscuits. Well, she decided that she wanted more snacks. Well, I didn't have more snacks, and so she, she, she bit me right here. I've still got a little spot where you can see. It's not hard, but hard enough. Didn't let go. Was definitely registering her complaint that there were no more snacks. But, you know, the interesting thing about donkeys, donkeys are, are a little more wild than horses are. Horses were domesticated before donkeys were. And, and so you can train a horse to run into combat, to run into battle. I saw a video the other day about a, a horse that was purchased by a Marine Corps unit in Korea during the Korean War, and her job was to bring rounds to a recoilless rifle, artillery piece, that they had. And in the course of one battle, under fire, wounded twice, she brought an astronomical hundreds and hundreds of rounds of ammunition to the gun emplacement. You can train a horse to do that. You can't train a donkey to do that. Because donkeys are too smart to do that. Um, you want me to do what now? No, thank you. I'll stay here. So, so when we, we read the story about Saul with the donkeys, we need to, to keep in mind these aren't just animals, right? I mean, these are donkeys. There's a specific thing that's going on here. Saul is, Saul is having to go out and collect animals that have their own mind. Collect animals that, that maybe don't want to be collected. And so he's, he's sent out to collect them and and then interestingly, he, he's not the one who brings them home. God is the one who, who brings them back. But God uses this incident to, to get him and Samuel into the same spot. And there at the beginning of chapter 10, we see Samuel anoint Saul. See, a donkey is going to take care of itself. It's got its own mind. You might have a, a small group of, of donkeys, but you're not going to have something like a, like a flock of sheep. And so when we look at Saul with his donkeys compared to David and his sheep as a shepherd, see, see donkeys, will, donkeys will take care of themselves. They'll get away from the danger. Donkeys will take care of themselves. They'll, they'll make sure that they're okay. Sheep, on the other hand... Not so much. Sheep need a shepherd. In fact, sheep so need a shepherd that we actually have a word. Shepherd. Sheep herd. We don't have a, a donk herd. Right? 
sheep need a shepherd. And, and so, so here, right, we, we see God already playing this difference. Who is David? David's a shepherd. David's a pastor. David is one who, who tends the flock, who protects them. And we read all about David, right, and the, the, the things that David does to protect his father's flock. Saul's just a, a kid, a man sent out to collect some hard-headed, stubborn donkeys who've gotten away. There's a difference. There's a juxtaposition. Even in the animals that, that God is pointing out and the difference between the character of, of Saul and of David. One of the things that we're going to see as the story of Saul continues to unfold is that, yes, God has given the people exactly what they asked. You know, this is sometimes why we need to be careful what we ask God for. Because sometimes God gives us exactly what we ask for. And it's not what we need. But here, God has given the people exactly what they asked for. They asked for a king like all of the other kings. And that's what God gives them. And it's a disaster. We will see over the next weeks what a disaster it is for the people of Israel that God has given them what they have asked for. See, sometimes... Sometimes when we're in transitions, we decide to follow our own desires instead of the desires of God. It's easy when we're in transition for us to, to, to think, well, I want this, I need this, let's do the thing that I want to do. But, but when we're in transitions the first thing we should do is not ask ourselves, what do I want? The first thing we should do is we should get down on our knees before the sovereign throne of God and ask him, what is it that you want? Brothers and sisters, not, let's not make the mistake of asking for a king like everybody else has. Let's ask for a man after God's own heart. Let's not ask God to make us like everybody else. Let's ask, uh, let us ask God to make us after his own heart. That's discipleship. That's sanctification. That's growing in holiness, growing in Christ-likeness, to become more like God, to become a man or a woman after his own heart. You know, all too often, all too often when we are faced with, with transitions, transitions in churches, transitions in our own personal lives, transitions in our employment or where we're living. We ask ourselves what we want instead of asking God what he wants. Because one of the things that I'm, I'm so proud of this, this bylaws and 
policy committee that has served you so well for almost a year and a half. Because every session, every meeting of that committee starts in prayer. Every meeting, the committee asks God to lead them. When a decision is not clear, they wait and they think and they pray. I bring that up as opposed to another other committees because that's the committee that I have spent the most time with. Hopefully ever. Your other committees do the same thing. And so when we find ourselves in transition, we're in transition now in a congregation as we as we are coming under these revisions to the bylaws. The question we ask ourselves are we following God or are we following our own desires? That's not always an easy question to answer. But as we will see in the weeks ahead, when we get it wrong, the results are disastrous. Um, our hymn of invitation is going to be hymn number 417, Trusting Jesus.